So we're going to be in uh, Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to finish up Galatians chapter 3, although I could probably preach three or four sermons on uh, 21 through 29. That's where we're going to be. Uh, I want to draw together uh, the, this chapter, and what, uh, one, of the, one of the main goals that, that I have in, in going through the story that is the, the scriptures, the, the story of the scriptures, is to basically uh, to ingrain that in, in our minds, because the more that we uh, can hear the story of the scriptures, the more we will understand the, what comes out of that story uh, and ends up in the New Testament. Uh, this is not simply doctrine that just kind of found its way to a page. This is the, uh, this is the fourth act in a fifth act play. Uh, the fifth is, of course, going to be the return of our Lord. Uh, but the fourth act has been accomplished. The Messiah has come. And uh, this is the answer. This is the, actually the answer to Adam. This is the answer to the beginning of the Bible and, um, and to the whole Bible, but, um, but specifically to Adam and to the descendants of Adam, uh, who we call humanity. Adam, as you know, uh, his name actually means mankind. Adam means mankind. And so in Adam, we might say that all of, all of mankind is represented. And we're going to see that in this story, even though Paul doesn't expressly mention it, he is alluding to that in the background, and we can hear, uh, we can hear allusions um, as we read even Galatians chapter 3. So you may think I'm hearing things and hearing voices, but uh, I hope to demonstrate otherwise. All right, let's pray. We'll, uh, we'll jump into Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 21 through 29. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that uh, you have been faithful to your promises. Faithful to the promise made with Abraham to uh, bless all the nations. And Father, we're thankful that we are a part of that. We thank you, Father, for your great love that brought it all about, that brought it down to man. We're thankful for that, and we just pray that you be with us today. We pray that you might, uh, you might speak um, and uh, that you might uh, move in this uh, body. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, 21 through 29. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would, have, would indeed have been out of law. But the scripture has imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, imprisoned until the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our custodian, our tutor. Some say a tutor. We'll get into that. Our custodian until Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now, the fa now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Last week, Paul had demonstrated that living under the law was not the way the covenant with Abraham was to be fulfilled. What was that covenant with Abraham? In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was a blessing. The blessing that would go to the nations out of Abraham's descendants. Out of Abraham himself, but out of his descendants as well. In you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So we demonstrated, he demonstrated that that this promise does not come about through the law. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't exactly mean, although if he were asked, he'd probably say, yes, this is true. He doesn't exactly mean that you can't, you can't go do good things and, and then bring about the promise. It's not exactly what he's after. What he is after, uh, as we saw last week and the week before, is that Possessing the Torah, possessing the law of Moses is not the sign that you're in covenant with God, right? It is not what makes you a member of the covenant because, and, and this, is, this, is, uh, this is why it can't make you a member of the covenant. The law creates at least two peoples, Jew and Gentile. Okay? Keep, in, keep this in mind as you read what Paul says about the law. It's not that the law is bad, it's that the law creates two people, but God is one. God does not have two people, God has one people, okay? This is what Paul is about. We saw at the beginning of this chapter that, uh, that Paul is arguing that Abraham's descendants are one family, one family, and this is what the promise of God has been about all along. This one family, this one people, Jew and Gentile in one body, was the very goal of the promise made to Abraham. Therefore, the law could not be the fulfillment of the promise. A syllogism that you could, you could say to kind of summarize what Paul, is, what Paul is getting at here is, the promise is for one people. The law creates two peoples. Jew and Gentile. Therefore, the law cannot fulfill the promise. This is what he's after. Okay? The promise is for one people to create one people. The law creates two. Therefore, the law cannot fulfill the promise, just to simplify what's going on. But in fact, it is even worse. It's not simply that the law can't bring about the promise. No, the promise can't give life to this one people, I'm sorry, the law cannot give life to this one people. The promise can, but the law cannot. And that is what both Jew under the law and Gentile needed. They needed life. To put it another way, Israel under the law abides in death. It is also true that the Gentiles themselves are abiding in death, and it has been from the beginning. We'll see how this, we'll see how this actually works out within Paul's mindset, within the scriptures, actually. It is true that the Gentiles were already in death as well. In fact, they're not a part of Israel, 
and to, to not be a part of, of the original covenant means that you are outside the covenant promises of God. It is true that they also are there. But here in Galatians, the issue con, uh, concerning Paul is that the law is being proffered as a solution to, to the problem of sin. The law is being given as a solution to the problem of sin. And the law itself was actually intensifying this problem. Now, what the whole world needs, what you and I, what Jew, Gentile, what all of us needs, is life. And this is the concern of the promise. This is why the promise is said to be the end, right? The, the goal of God is to get the promise, the blessing, the promised blessing to the nations. He says in verse 21, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, righteousness would have indeed been out of law. At the very least, this implies that what was needed was life, and that could not be given by the law. What does this mean, and where might we find the background to Paul's thought? This is what I think is going on. We have to go back to Genesis to the story of Adam and the garden, to look at how the story of Adam and the garden was being read and understood by Paul and those who were reading it during his time. There are a couple of premises. One is that to talk about Adam is to talk about all humanity. As I mentioned before, the, the very name Adam means humanity. It means mankind, Adam. To talk about Adam is to talk about all humanity. And to talk about Adam was also, in a special way, to talk about Israel. Why? Because to talk about Adam receiving a commandment is to talk about Israel receiving a commandment. There's a typology there. Adam receives his commandment. What happens to Adam after the receiving of the commandment? disobeys the commandment. What happens? He's sent into exile. He is in death. He's abiding in death. In Genesis 2, 16 and following, God gives Adam a commandment. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, what was the penalty of violating the commandment? It was death, right? It says it very clearly. It was death. Now, here's the question. Did death happen when he violated the commandment? Let's read. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam. So this is after he sins. The Lord comes to him in the garden uh, in the cool of the day, and he says, where are you, Adam? And Adam is, says, I, I heard your voice, and I hid myself, for I was naked. And the Lord says, who told you, right? Who told you you were naked? Okay, and then after this, the Lord God makes garments of skin for Adam, which we'll come back to, and his wife, and he clothes them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the the tree of life, okay, and eat and live forever. Uh, Genesis 3, 23, 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. So he drove out, so he sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So the question is, did Adam die? Did he die? He didn't die then, but did he die? Okay, and so what, what I think is going on here, and I can demonstrate this, I think, over and over again, is that, yes, Adam died. In, in fact, he died in that day. But what's going on is that the, the author of Genesis is defining what it means to die differently than just saying he kicked the bucket, right? He fell over and he died. It's not, not exactly what he means. Now, 900 years later, yes, he dies. He dies physically. He expires just like all humanity, okay? But the commandment said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then the question is, did he die in that day? Okay. Yes, yes, he died. But he died the death of exile. Okay. Keep this in mind because this is very important. This is important when we get to Israel because Israel is going to repeat exactly what happened to Adam. The death spoken of in Genesis 2 was the death of exile from the tree of life, right? Remember, keep in mind that what mankind needs is life. When Adam is excluded from the garden, he is kept from the tree of life, the tree that gives life. That, that's what he had to eat of, and now he is exiled from that. That is death, okay? Now, I know that... Uh, this, this is a new concept, but bear with me. In the day that you eat of it, I submit to you, means he dies the death of exile, cast out from the garden. And this is a type of what is going to happen to Israel. Okay? Now, we should stop here for just a moment and define what is meant by life. Very often when we hear the concept of life or eternal life, it was mentioned there that he might eat and live forever, that is another name for it, eternal life. And you might think, well, that's kind of anachronistic. We're taking something in from the New Testament and importing it, taking it back into the old. But I don't think so. I think that's what was, that was on the mind of, of the author uh, when he wrote it. What mankind needs is life, eternal life. Okay, it's another name for it. But it's not simply living forever in heaven. If we, if it has, fu it has future implications. But life is much more broad than that. In the Genesis story, it means something like participating in the very life of God himself. It involves of eating of the fruit of a tree, digesting it, being in the presence of God. So when he is driven out from the garden, he is driven out from his presence. Now look at, um, it just occurred to me, think about Jonah. What happens when Jonah is cast out into the sea? What does he say? I'm driven out from your presence. He is basically experiencing the same thing. What, what Adam experienced in exile from the garden, he said, I am driven out from your presence. Yet again, I will look to your holy temple, and I will then be restored. Right? I am driven out of the land, but now I'm going to be restored. This is what goes on. But it, this has implications for the future. Uh, having life does, but it's more broad. In the Genesis story, it means something like 
participating in and being in the very presence of God, uh, being in his presence and abiding in this life. This comes through as eating of the fruit of a tree, of the tree of life. It's intentionally broad, but the story sets the stage for the rest of the Bible to be about God's desire and plan to give life to all mankind. So we can see that death, the death of exile, comes through Adam, who stands for all of humanity. That's what his name means. And he, as the representative of all humanity, has taken humanity down the road to death, to exile. Now, fast forward within the Pentateuch. Israel is created as a people, as the very son of God we read in, in uh, Exodus 4.23. Israel goes to Sinai. She's brought out of Egypt. She's brought out of Egypt. Where does she go next? She goes to Mount Sinai. What is given there? Commandments. Given commandments. The law, what we've been talking about in Exodus chapter 20. Now keep in mind the, the story we just talked about. Adam being put into, being taken out from somewhere. He took him out from where he was created. He put him in the garden and he commanded the man. After this, he then falls. What happens to Israel after they receive the law? First generation, what do they, what do, they do? What, what do? What does Israel do after they receive the law? The first generation, except for two people, Caleb and, Moses, uh, Caleb and Joshua, what do they do? Where do they die? They die outside the land. They die outside the land. They are not allowed to enter the land. Even Moses himself is not allowed to enter the land. The first generation dies in exile. What does this remind us of? Again, Adam dying in exile. Second generation goes in knowing that they will be rebellious and suffer the death of exile. What is the threat? What is the threat to Israel if they do not obey the law? You will be exiled. You will be cast out of the land. You will be sent among the nations, and you will be living in death. That's where you'll be. Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call, this is Moses speaking to them. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. Now, this is important, especially in light of Galatians. The blessing and the curse. I set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. In other words, life equals the blessing. Death equals the curse. Remember chapter 3 that we've been talking about. The curse. Israel was under the curse. This is where he's going. And what he has done, what the author of the Pentateuch has done, is he's connected the blessing of Abraham with life that God intends to give all mankind that was lost in Adam. Did they choose life? Not as a whole. What happens? In a word, death. Death happens. Exile from the land. I'm not going to read it here, but have a look at Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, we're all familiar with the story of, of the dry bones, right? What he says in that story, Ezekiel is an exilic prophet. He is sent to Israel. He goes into exile with Israel. He's an exilic prophet, and he gets this vision, and this vision is of a valley of dry bones. And what, what he says to, it, to Ezekiel is, is actually very important. He says, 
What do these people need? He goes on to interpret it and he says, they need to be raised from their graves. In other words, they need to have life. They need resurrection. And this is framed within the, within the whole context of, I'm going to bring them back to their land. In other words, exile is death. Resurrection is going back to the land. Eternal life, right? That's life. Now, this is going to be taken metaphorically or expanded. It becomes much more broad when we get to the New Testament, but this is Paul's thought. This is the background through which Paul is, is assessing the situation of the Galatians or the people that are coming to Galatia and trying to get the Galatian Christians to go back under the law. Israel is supposed to be the remedy for death. But she finds herself in death, the death of exile, under the curse of the law. They need life. And now Israel needs life. And for those in Galatia to put themselves back under the law is to go back into death, into a state of death. This is the point. Right? Now, to say that Israel needs life is to say Israel needs to come out of exile. They need to come out of death. They need life. Now, it sounds like Paul is being a little bit negative about the law in the previous section, and this is, this is actually why uh, he, he turns to what we saw at the beginning. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, he says. Okay? But we can ask the question, did not the law actually facilitate the death, the exile? This, there's a fine line that Paul walks here. Yes, the law facilitated death, but it didn't, it was not because of the law itself. It wasn't intended, Paul says, to, to give the very life that it expected out of the people. The emphasis, the emphasis here is that it was unable to provide life. It had purposes, but it was not able to give what the promise could give. If it could have, then righteousness, that is covenant membership, in the Messiah would be by the law, but it is not. Genesis, uh, Galatians 3.21, is the law then against the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law or been out of law, he says. But that wasn't its purpose, to give life. This is Paul's argument. What was the purpose? He says in verse 22, this is one of them anyway, we've been looking at multiple reasons for the law, but the scripture has imprisoned all under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What does it mean for the, for the scripture to imprison all under sin? We were just talking about Israel being under the law. How can he then talk about scripture imprisoning all under sin? Is being under the law equal to being under sin? Not exactly, but these two concepts are closely related. Here's the argument. Since Adam, all mankind was under sin. We can see in chapter four, it's a very important point. If you look at chapter four of Genesis, the Cain and Abel story, what is it that's lurking at the door? say sin big s right sin is at the door and it's lurking like a monster and it's going to it's going to overcome you it's going to rule you 
since Adam, and this is the point, I think, of chapter 4, one of the points. Since Adam, Cain was the, the first generation after Adam, mankind has been under the dominion, the domination of sin. Now, Israel was called as a new humanity, to the very son of God, to be the means through which the whole world would be brought out from under sin. Keep this in mind because this is Paul's argument. Very important. So you read uh, Romans as well. It's, it's back there as well. All the while, the scripture knew that this wasn't going to work, that the law was not going to bring about the promise, that a new creation was actually in order, and that new creation would then give life. Thus, God made promises to Abraham to bring this about to create a single new humanity through Abraham's family. And this is, the, this is the way it works, to create a huge humanity, a, a new humanity through the, huma- through, the, uh, through the descendants of, the physical descendants of Abraham. It doesn't mean every one of the physical descendants. It just means through the descendants of Abraham, life is going to come because this is going to be the answer to the promise. But there's a hang-up. As we said last week, Israel, Abraham's family herself, is in Adam as well, under sin, under sin. Extraordinary measures, then, must be taken to preserve Israel until the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the, this is the temporary purpose of the law. Or, as verse 23 says, But before faith came, under the law we were guarded, being imprisoned until the faith which was later to be revealed. The nations were not given a babysitter like Israel because they weren't the means by which God would give life. The nations were already abiding in death. But Israel, as the one, the the custodian was given, the law was given to keep them as a people until the fullness of time. We're going to see in chapter 4, when the fullness of, God, uh, fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law, right? Redeem Israel. Why? So that the promise could then go to the nations. The nations were already in exile. They needed life. What happens with the law is that the, it facilitates sending Israel among the nations living now in death. They're there with the nations so that God has imprisoned all under sin, including Israel. And that's the point. It's not that, it's not that Israel was not, th- that they weren't sinners as well. I mean, that's, that's the problem. But the problem is that they were chosen to be the, the instrument through which God blessed the world. It turns out that they too are in Adam. They too are in Adam and need life. So too Israel. God chose Israel to be a, a vessel for the blessing of the world. And that's why she needed a pedagogos, a, a babysitter, or a, uh, a custodian, someone to make sure that she stays as a family until the fullness of time. Therefore, the law has become our pedagogos, our custodian, until Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. Note several things here. The we in this verse, these two verses, 24 and 25, is Israel. It's not everybody. This is often a mistake that we make when we're reading this, this book. We think everything is about us in general as Christians. The we here in this passage is Israel. 
Israel needed to be under a custodian so that the single family encapsulated in Jesus the Messiah could come. When that happened, the babysitter would no longer be needed, no more custodian, because, and this is a very important point, the Spirit would come. And the Spirit is able to give what? Life, right? The Spirit can give life. The, the law cannot. It cannot. It, can, it was never intended to give life, but the Spirit can. And the Spirit is the answer for Paul. Though Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on it, uh, talking about it here, he was at the beginning of chapter 3, he, he asked the question, did you receive the Spirit through the hearing that comes by faith or by the works of the law? He's already asked the question. He doesn't spend a ton of time on it, but that the Spirit is the answer uh, to it. There, in, so if we look at, actually look at Romans 8, Romans 8, it becomes pretty clear that the Spirit is actually the replacement of the, of the tablets. Okay? God writes with the finger of God upon the tablets, but people don't receive of his Spirit. The, the Spirit, though, when the fullness of time comes, God sends forth his Son. He gives of his Spirit, and this is why book of Acts, this is so important that the Spirit is poured out upon, uh, upon the Jews there at the beginning, and then uh, also the Gentiles receive the Spirit. The Spirit is the answer, and the Spirit gives life. That's the whole point. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For Listen how many times he says Spirit here. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and the spirit of life, this, what we've been looking at kind of brings new meaning into that phrase. The law of the spirit of life means something like the law of the spirit which gives life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, this is what Paul was saying in Galatians, the law, it was weak, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he's condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. So that the righteous desire of the law, it's translated various ways, but think about, the law wanted to give life. It wanted to do it, but it was powerless to do it. It was not intended that way. The righteous uh, requirement, it's often said, or the righteous desire of the law, that is life, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is what? Death. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Now we can hear those echoes. We can hear echoes of Genesis 3. Genesis 2, Genesis 3, we can hear echoes of Deuteronomy 30, 31, 32, where uh, life and death, blessing and curse are set against each other, and uh, we can see that the Spirit actually is the one that is going to provide life. Take Israel out from under the law, under the condemnation of the law. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. They were condemned, chapter 7, by the law. They've been brought out of that. By the Spirit, this is the point. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of the Messiah, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of, of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life, there it is again, to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. In other words, he will raise you from the dead one day. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. <clears throat> For if you're living according to the flesh, you will die. But, the spirit, but, if you, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God piggybacks directly into our text here note Galatians 3 26 he says for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus Romans 8 14 for all who are being led by the spirit of God these are the sons of God same things are talked about here in different uh, different ways Paul's point those who have the spirit which comes through trusting in the faithfulness of Christ in his work his crucifixion these are the sons of God and to be the sons of Abraham, uh, to be the sons of God is to be the sons of Abraham, part of the one family to whom the promise was made. We're almost full circle to the, back to the beginning of Galatians 3. In verse 7, Galatians 3, 7. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And then here he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to go on and say, and your sons of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. This is going to be the, the final, final verse in chapter 3. He's coming full circle. He's made several different passes at it, explaining it different ways, and then he comes full circle to, uh, to the end and says, look, if you're in the Messiah, you are Abraham's descendants. You're also sons of God. Now, to make this practical, it's practical anyway because this when we understand what's going on, it actually shapes how we think, how we think about the rest of the Bible, how we approach it, and how we conduct our lives, right? Conduct it by the Spirit. We've been talking this whole time about being in the family of Abraham, and that's where this chapter ends up. To be in that family is to be in life, to be in the Messiah, and to possess life. This has life-changing implications. Described here, in verse 27, as putting on the Messiah. Okay? If a person is in the Messiah, he has put on the Messiah. What does that mean? Galatians 3.27. For all of you who were baptized into the Messiah have clothed yourself with Christ. This means putting on clothing. Everything that the Messiah is, you take on yourself. For everything Christ is, we are to be, because we have been, been incorporated into him. If we listen here, we can hear clear allusions, the voices I was referring to at the beginning. You can hear voices from Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Adam and the woman sew on fig leaves, but God makes them clothing of skin. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. In other words, all the ones who would receive life. And the Lord God made garments of skin 
for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. We are to put on the Messiah, and to do this is to be clothed in the clothing of the Messiah. It's very interesting in, in this passage in Genesis 3. We don't tend to read it this way because we just read it as, oh, this happened to the first man and woman. But what happens in chapter 3 is that they put on their own clothing. And then God says, away with that clothing. He clothes them with skins. Right? They put on fig leaves. He clothes them with skins. And he renames Eve. She was called, at the beginning, she was called woman. That was, her, that was what she was called. This one will be called woman because out of man she was taken. It. And that's what, what we think her name is. What happens here? Now the man called his wife's name Eve. She gets a new name. She gets a new. Why does she get a new name? Well, because she was going to be the mother of all living. The promise we saw in Genesis chapter three fifteen, the the promise was given that the descendant of the woman would be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. That's five verses earlier. Adam renames his wife Kava. Kava means life. Kava. And he says she's the mother of all who will have life. So very early on we've got this, this idea that by believing in the promise, the promised descendant, you will receive life. And that's what's going on here. We are to be like the, the second Adam, the second Adam, a type of Christ clothed with the clothing, clothing of the Messiah. And you women are to be like Eve, renamed from woman to Eve, so that you are bringing forth life. This is the point of that story, and Paul is saying to his hearers, be true sons of God, be true daughters of Eve. Romans 13, 11 and 12. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And this is it. But put on, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Like clothing, put him on and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This is, this is who the children of Abraham are to be. And back to the, to the main thing, this brings us kind of full circle. In this family, what counts, what counts is not race, not status, nor gender, but Christ. Christ is what matters. Not race, not status, not gender. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew, nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The law had divided and distinguished between all three. Were you circumcised? Only the male can get circumcised. If you were, you're a male, and you're a free man, right? You're not a slave. Male, uh, the, the law had distinguished between all three. In Christ, all these things are scubalon says in Philippians. Dung. That's what he says. All of these things, these race, status, and gender, dung. Dung. That's what it is. 
God is creating a new humanity from all the nations. These things don't simply go away. It's not that you're not male or female. But in regards to who's in the promise, who has life, these things do not matter. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Are you a child of Abraham? Are you a child of God? This is what matters. He can make you a part of that family today through the death of Jesus on your behalf. Desire earnestly to put on the Messiah, and God will make a way. Seek him while he can be found.